Hey, this is Graham, and I am so pumped you're joining us today. If you're a part of our Grace community, whether in person or online, we would love to connect with you on social media, at the Grace AG on all social outlets. But the best way to connect is to join our online community at live.graceassembly.org. Here, you can engage and connect with other Grace members all around the world. So, we hope today's message encourages and challenges you. Let's jump right in. So today we are going to finish up a series that I think we've been in for a few months, at least it feels like it. We're talking about what it means to be rooted in God's word. And today's message is the finale. I think it's the last message of this series. And at least to me, it feels like it might be the most important one. I want to talk to you today about the spirit of Judas. And nobody gets super excited about a message about Judas. Because we know that it's probably going to be challenging. It's probably going to be convicting. And the answer to all those things are yes. But I think what I have to share today is extremely important. So let me remind you that the big idea of all of this is that my success as a follower of Jesus is directly related to my commitment to consistently engage with God's word. So hopefully by now you've made the choice to put God's word a high priority in your life. You're reading it, you're studying it, you're learning it, you're living it. That's the goal. That's what we're saying. We created a resource for everybody to learn how to study God's word. It's a 30-day challenge, basically 30, 15-minute or less videos to teach you how to study the Bible. If you've never studied the Bible in your life, you are going, we're going to start at the most simple part of Bible study, or if you've been studying the whole Bible, you're still going to learn some things about how to study the Bible. So if you haven't completed this, let me encourage you to complete it. If you haven't started it, start it. Watch these again and again, because our goal is to help everybody to consistently engage with God's Word. And I've told you many times that coming into this year, I felt like there were two things that we needed to address as a church, and that is we need to address the spirit of offense and the spirit of deception. And how many would agree that we live in a world that is increasingly giving in to deception? We talked a couple weeks ago that how do we know what's true and how do we know what is deceiving? Well, the Bible is God's standard of truth. So rather than trying to figure out what deception looks like, figure out what the truth looks like, and then anything that doesn't match with the truth, then that's not correct, right? And so we want to be students of God's word because anything that is not lined up with God's word, we don't want any part of that. So that was two weeks ago when we shared that message. And so today, I want to talk to you about the spirit of Judas because uh, some people uh, in our world, the, the, the spirit of deception is alive and well in our culture and, and we could take just an entire month and talk about examples of this, but there are people in our government who can't even define the word woman. And that's just one example where our culture has completely abdicated the idea of absolute truth. And so we have to be super careful that we don't fall into that. That's the spirit of deception in our culture. But most of the scriptures in the Bible about deception are directed to the church. 
Now, there's lots that the Bible has to say about deception in the church. I've got all kinds of scriptures in your notes that you can look at on your own. But to me, uh, well, let me back up for just a second. Uh, There's lots of issues going on in our culture, so the next series that we're going to address, I'm calling Grace and Truth, because I feel like uh, I can do a much better job as your pastor in equipping you, how do we engage culture? We don't want to hide from culture, we need to engage culture, because people need to know Jesus. Right? But how do we engage conversations about abortion, about transgenderism, about drunkenness and all these kind of stuff that's going on in our culture. Well, Jesus gives us the template. He says he was full of grace and truth. And how many know we can be full of grace and truth at the same time? And so in a couple of weeks, we're going to start a brand new message series talking all about that. I hope you'll join us. But the scariest verses in the Bible about deception, in my opinion, is Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many, would you say the word many? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers uh, of lawlessness. Now, there's lots of scary parts about this passage, but to me, the scariest part is the word many. Not a few, not several. Jesus said, many are going to stand before the Lord on judgment day. Now, by the way, if you didn't know this, you need to know this, that you are going to stand before the Lord and give an account of your life. If you didn't know that, you should know that. And then live for that day. But the Bible says, Jesus said that many are going to stand before the Lord thinking I'm in like Flynn. I'm I'm going to heaven. And yet they're not going to make it. And the reason Jesus is saying here is because they were deceived into thinking that salvation is something that it wasn't. And again, it's not some, it's many. They were deceived in their thinking. And I think all of us need to ask this question, could that be me? Could that happen to me? I told you this is going to be a little bit of a sobering message. Is that okay? But I really want you to lean in today because I think this is going to help us. And Jesus goes on to say in Matthew chapter 24, false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive If possible, even the elect. Now this is another verse I don't like in the Bible. Because Jesus is warning, even the elect can be deceived. Now that word elect means, in the original Greek word, chosen ones. And it's a term used a number of times in the New Testament to refer to people who are already believers in Jesus. So what the scripture is saying that there are people who once were true followers of Jesus at one time and yet won't make it to heaven. How is it that you can be a follower of Jesus and be, be deceived to such a point where you actually miss out on heaven? I think Judas 
gives us a picture of how even the elect, the chosen ones, can be deceived. Earlier this year, uh, as I was preparing for Easter, I was listening to lots of messages. I always listen, I always listen to lots of messages. You know, that's what preachers do for fun. I mow my grass, I listen to preaching. That's what I do. I was listening to one particular message about Judas, and uh, I had this series in mind, and I realized, listening to that message, that Judas could be a picture of how we are deceived. Think about this. Judas was one of the 12 disciples chosen by Jesus. And when Jesus called Judas to follow him to be one of his disciples, remember, not everybody that Jesus called followed him. Some people said, well, let me go bury my dad. Some people said, let me go this first. But Judas actually left his, his life, he, his livelihood, whatever he was doing, his home, his family, and he sets out to follow Jesus just like the other disciples. And all of the disciples were given power by Jesus to cast out demons and perform miracles. Here it is in the scripture, uh, Jesus summoned his 11 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits. Does it say 11? No, he says 12. Which means this was Judas. Uh, To cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And the names of the 12 apostles are these, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. He's naming all the disciples, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. So I want you to imagine all of the disciples go out to pray for people and cast out devils and heal people. Imagine there was this line of people coming to pray uh, And you don't get to stand in front of Peter or John or Philip. You stand in front of Judas. Judas, will you pray for me? And when he prays for you, you get healed. That's what happened. It's hard for us to fathom that somebody can be used with such great power and authority and still end up being deceived. But that's exactly what happened to Judas. And remember that back in Matthew chapter 7, we already read this, that one of, the, uh, one of the defenses that people will say as they stand before the Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? I think we need to really pause and take a look at this and, and realize that uh, there are people uh, that will do signs and wonders and they're still not going to make it to heaven. Have great church services. Some people teach that Judas was never a true follower of Jesus, that he wasn't really born again, but I think what we've shared so far from Scripture tells us a different story. Here's a question. What do you think of when you think of Judas? How did, how did Judas look? Did, when you think of Judas, do you think dark features, shifty eyes, You know how us Colts fans perceive Bill Belichick of the New England Patriots? (laughs) Hisses when he talks. 
But that's not how the Bible depicts Judas at all. Remember in the upper room, Jesus gathers his disciples and he says, hey, one of you will betray me. Not one of those disciples say, yeah, that's Judas. We always knew Judas was a little shifty, a little shady. No, they didn't do that. They said, is it I? In fact, Judas was, in fact, one of the most respected disciples. And we know that because he was chosen to handle the money. And how many know you don't put shady people as your accountant? So the tough question is, how does somebody who's chosen by God, spends three years with Jesus, not only sees the miracles Jesus did, not only listening to everything that Jesus taught, but also participated in many miracles himself, how does somebody genuinely believe that Jesus is the Messiah? How does that person end up betraying Jesus? I think there is a story in the Bible that gives us a a picture of how deception could happen This is a story about Judas and Mary. So Matthew writes about it. John writes about it. Let me read Matthew's version of the story, and then I'm going to give you John's. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper. Now, John's version tells us that this, uh, this woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. And when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. John specifically says this was Judas who who had become indignant with the disciples. Uh, Why this waste? They ask. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a what? A beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So in both Matthew and in John, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you have these two stories intertwined. Mary, which we find out later is the, brother, the, the sister of Lazarus, who Jesus resurrected from the grave in John chapter 11, and you have Judas. And I think in this story, we're going to see uh, a pretty different picture between the two people in this story. Let's contrast the approach of Mary and the approach of Judas. Now, I think to Judas, Jesus was useful. To Mary, Jesus was beautiful. Judas wanted a Messiah who would punish evil. All the enemies of Israel, take them out. All the bad people out there. And reward me the good people. Mary, in contrast, somehow understood that the Messiah came to give grace to everybody and that there were none righteous. Judas enters the presence of Jesus focused on himself. Mary's enter the presence of Jesus 
in awe of God. Judas wanted a Messiah who could bestow power and influence and riches. And we know that from John chapter 12, when John's version of the story, one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why was it this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And uh, as keeper of the money back, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now let me remind you that John writes this after Jesus dies and is resurrected. So there's no indication that anybody knew that Judas was skimming money at the time. Otherwise, they would have said, Jesus, deal with this dude. But after the fact, they realized that Judas's heart was a little different. Contrast this to Mary, who was so overwhelmed with love and gratefulness to Jesus that she takes a very expensive jar of perfume and wastes it by pouring it on Jesus' head. Think about this. This is her most precious treasure. And she offers it in a moment because she realizes how much more precious Jesus is than her. She loved much because she had been forgiven much. Perhaps Judas wasn't looking for forgiveness from Jesus, perhaps because he saw in himself so much self-righteousness. And in Jesus, he saw somebody who could give me what I wanted. We know that Judas didn't quite understand Jesus' heart and his mission because he calls this act of worship by Mary a waste. Why would you do this, Mary? Judas did not understand the heart of God, the heart of worship. Think about it. An anointing of perfume isn't exactly helpful to Jesus at this moment. Judas in his practical mind, like, why are you doing this? It wasn't useful for Mary either because Mary knew that she didn't need to earn Jesus' favor by doing this. She already had it. You can read John chapter 11 to figure that out. So even though Mary's sacrifice was useless in the eyes of the world, Mary's act proves something very powerful because it was an act of worship. I think it put her love for Jesus on display. And again, I think these two stories are intertwined for a reason because it helps us to see the contrast between Mary's approach to God, the gospel, Jesus, and Judas's approach to God, the gospel, Jesus. See, to Judas, Jesus was a means to an end. And when Judas ultimately realized that following Jesus was not going to lead to wealth and money and influence and power that he wanted, he betrayed Jesus. To Mary, Jesus, was, Jesus wasn't the means to an end. Jesus was the prize. He was the object of worship. She wasn't worshiping Jesus because of what Jesus could do for her. She was worshiping Jesus because of who he was. He was her savior. He was her Lord. See, to Judas, Jesus is useful. To Mary, Jesus is beautiful. Judas's served Jesus to get things. Mary saw knowing Jesus as riches and wealth itself. Judas's reject Jesus the moment Jesus stops being useful to them. 
Mary's cling to Jesus because he never stops being beautiful to her. Judas's walk away from Jesus when Jesus disappoints them. Mary's cling to Jesus even when Jesus disappoints us. Again, see John chapter 11, the story of Lazarus. So how do we respond when Jesus disappoints us? How do we respond when suffering comes our way? Do we say to God, you know, God, this hurts like crazy, but if you can help, if you can use this to make me better or more like you, I'll take it. Because knowing you is better than riches or fame or wealth. I think in the last two years, American Christianity has been exposed. I think far too many of us in our country are serving Jesus because of what he can do for us. And a lot of pastors and churches are at fault because now we preach this transactional gospel. Here's what Jesus can do for you. Now let me pause for a moment saying that serving Jesus is the smartest decision you'll ever make. He truly does change people's lives. But the reality is we don't serve him because of what he can do for us. We serve him because of who he is. We sometimes approach Jesus like Judas did and we forget that there are other scriptures in the Bible than just the positive faith-building ones, faith-building verses. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Thank God, that's true. It's in the Bible. Greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. That's true. It's in the Bible. But what else does the Bible say? Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death. That's in there too. Hopefully all of you will, if you haven't yet, get the chance to meet Brad Minaw from our church. I asked him permission to share his story. He said yes. In August of 2021, Brad was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, It progressed uh, to stage three. He said 23 lymph nodes were positive for cancer and that he had a 26% chance to survive the next two years. These are his words in verbatim, and I quote, within hours of being given a two-year survival, God gave me a new spirit. The blessing of all of this was a brand new revelation of how much I am loved by my Savior. I had never experienced this kind of love before. It was worth the disease many times over. I would not go back to my previous cancer state for anything. The beauty of our Savior is seen perfectly in the valley. I love the valley. It represents quiet, peace, and a deeper personal walk with Jesus than I ever had on the mountain. Wow. 
What a powerful testimony. The rest of the story is, Brad went back to the doctor and got a clean bill of health, and God's done a miracle in Brad's life. We praise God for that. But you didn't clap for the first part of the story, did you? I don't like that testimony. The healing one? Yeah, Jesus! You did it again! What about the fact that the power of walking through the valley that teaches me to be like Jesus, to be conformable to his death. We don't get excited about that, and that's understandable, but we need that. And some of you are saying, Pastor, what does this have to do with the deception in the last days, and especially with the elect being deceived? And what does this have to do with rooted in the scripture? And what, what is that all about? Well, I think far too many people in our American churches are serving Jesus because of what he can do for them. God, if you do this, I'll serve you. But if you don't answer my prayer and you disappoint me in any way, I'm done with you, God. And when God doesn't, and when God disappoints us or doesn't come through on his end of the deal, he doesn't answer our prayer. Our loved one doesn't get healed. They die. Our family falls apart. Our kids don't go the way that we think they should. Or we do the right thing. We follow scripture as, as much as we know how, and yet we still suffer. And we still get treated unfairly. Or bad things happen to us even though I'm serving God. What's up with that, God? How many people do we know that once served Jesus but are now no longer following God, no longer in church because they're upset with God? Because they're disappointed in what God has not done. Perhaps we're guilty of following Jesus for the same reasons that Judas did. Because of what he can do for me. I told you this was going to be a hard sermon, right? But we need this. I think the spirit of Judas also manifests itself in how we approach the Bible. Uh, instead of approaching Scripture and allowing Scripture to speak to me about everything, and instead of approaching Scripture that this is the final authority on how I should think and how I should live, which is what uh, the Bible says, Paul told Timothy and 2 Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So my approach to God's word should be, okay, Bible, tell me how to think. But I think in our American culture, we have taken on the spirit of Judas, and I only want to hear what the parts I like. And that confirms what I already believe about God, about Jesus. I come to scripture with my own lens and my own thinking in mind and I simply use the Bible to confirm what I already believe. I cherry pick a verse or part of a verse to support my belief. I don't worry about context, what it says before, what it says after, or what else the Bible says about that. I just cherry pick and, and uh, uh, I, uh, proof text that's what theologians call it. When I proof text, I'd use just one line of scripture to support my thinking. Well, the problem is that's dangerous. Now, we teach you how not to do that in this 30-day study. But the reality is because of our sin nature, uh, all of us suffer from something that scientists call confirmation bias. 
Now, confirmation bias simply means that I have the tendency to look for, to search for, to interpret and recall information that is favorable to what I already think and what I already believe. Selfishness. Now, the problem is when we approach the Bible this way, and we approach the Bible wanting it to uh, confirm what we already believe and ignore the parts that doesn't agree with us, we end up with things like this. This is a real picture. It's not photoshopped. It's not doctored in any way. This is an actual KKK meeting in a church in Portland, Oregon in 1914. Now the contrast in, these, in this picture is startling. Here you have the banner, Jesus saves. And below that you have every image of hate and evil that you can imagine. A lot of us forget that the majority of people in the KKK were middle class Protestants who went to church. And the truth is that they justified terrorizing and lynching non-white people based on their warped interpretation of a few lines of scripture. And when you proof text scripture, when you only look to the Bible for verses or phrases that seem to agree with you, when you bring your own confirmation bias to the Bible, you get deceived. Let's go ahead and take this picture down. It's hard to look at. The reality is I can twist the Bible to say whatever I want it to say. And you can too. And people do it all the time. Did you know that there are more than 300 churches, part of a group called the Metropolitan Community Churches, whose sole identity is organized around homosexuality? There are a growing number of churches uh, who have replaced communion with juice and bread and replaced it with marijuana. I am not kidding. There's a fascinating video on YouTube somewhere. Uh, it's a game. Uh, is this a church or is this a cannabis dispensary? You should look it up. It's kind of fascinating. Uh, my son Elliot was showing this to me. And so last spring we were driving to Branson, Missouri for a trip. And so we played the game along the way. Is that a church or is that a cannabis dispensary? It's kind of hard to tell sometimes based on the name of the building. But let's be honest, we do it too. Some of us come to the Bible with our American bias. And we think that this Bible only speaks to Americans. But I promise you, it also speaks to people in China and Russia and Iran. This is not an American book. This is a book for all time, for all people, all cultures, all backgrounds, and it is always true. That's reality. I think sometimes we need to be reminded that the three countries where the gospel is growing the fastest is Iran, China, 
and Russia. Three countries who Americans think is your enemy. Now listen, those governments are up to bad stuff. There's no doubt about it. But can I tell you, the people on the ground are not your enemy. Many of them are your brothers and sisters in the faith, and they're going to heaven. And we need to remember that. Can we be even more honest? Even inside America, we bring our own political lens to this book. And if we're honest, there's a lot of churches that are made up of primarily Republican voters who think that you can't be a Democrat and vote for a Democrat and actually go to heaven. I assure you, there are just as many churches that are primarily made up of Democratic voters who believe you can't even vote for a Republican and expect to go to heaven. Pastor, who did you vote for? <laughs> All that does is prove my point. I'll tell you who I voted for. I don't have a problem with that. My problem is we have superimposed our thinking over this book and let of this book impacting us and how we think and what we do. Come on, somebody. We both may say we believe the same Bible, but perhaps we're reading into the Bible what we want and we're ignoring the parts that we don't like. Can I tell you that at the center of this book is not a king, a president, a government, or a political party. At the center of this book is a cross. And at the cross, Red, yellow, black, white, young, and every old and everything in between. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all sinners, far from God, dead in our sins, who need resurrection power through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what this book is about. So don't use this book for any other reason than to speak the truth. Because if we're not careful, we can bring our own biases into our reading and studying the Bible, right? And instead of allowing the Bible to dictate our thinking, we look to the Bible to justify our thinking. And if the Bible doesn't agree with me, I don't want the Bible. To which I would remind you that uh, the Bible is not politically correct. It's just correct. We've got to lay down our prejudices, our values, our biases, and let God's word speak to us. Even the parts we don't like. And Paul warned us, he warned Timothy, he says that the time will come when they won't tolerate sermons like this. Sound doctrine. Uh, but they'll want to have their ears tickled. And they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. I think that's the world we're living in now. So our attitude should be like Francis Chan's quote. He says, when I disagree with something in the Bible, I've got to assume I'm wrong. So if I read something in the Bible that I don't like, or even if I disagree with, I've got a decision to make. Either the Bible is right or I'm right. Either God is right or I'm right. Last time I checked, I am not God. And you aren't either. 
So we have to assume we're wrong. Instead of using the Bible to affirm what I think is right, I have to wrestle even with the hard parts, New Testament and Old Testament, and understand why is this hard for me? Why don't I agree with this? See, the content of the Bible is not true because you or I agree with it. It's true because it's God's word. And how many know there are a lot of things in the Bible that are contrary to popular opinion right now? Salvation through Jesus Christ alone. Waiting until marriage to have sex. Marriage is designed by God to be between one man and one woman. The roles of men and women in marriage. We don't believe it because it's popular opinion. We believe it because it's God's word, and God's word will never pass away. And this is so important because we live in a world where truth is relative. But God's word says truth is forever. Truth is always the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. And so we've got to come to ask this question what Augustine said, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. This is the issue. Who's on the throne? Who's the standard? And people argue well, that's not right, or that's not compassionate, or that's not humanitarian. How do you even know what those words mean apart from God? And what we're actually doing is we are slyly, slowly, like Judas, putting ourselves and our opinions on the throne, and we're removing God. Like Judas, if we don't find what we want in the Bible, we'll we'll sell God out. We'll sell God's word out. Think about this. Mary brought a gift to Jesus worth a year's wages. Jesus sold Jesus. Judas sold Jesus for a month's wages. 30 pieces of silver. Can I ask you a hard question? What is your 30 pieces of silver? Talk to me about the love of God all you want, pastor. Tell me about the grace of God, the kindness of God, the mercy of God. Guess what? That's that's a theme throughout the Bible. But the moment you start talking about fill in the blank, I'm done. I'll go find me another church, another pastor who will agree with me about fill in the blank. The moment you start talking about living together without being married, pastor, I'm done. The moment you start talking about drunkenness or gambling or whatever your blank is, can I lovingly tell you that's probably your 30 pieces of silver? What kind of church is this anyway? Asking you these hard questions. Here's the reality. You can go to another church in America and find any pastor or a church that will agree with the way you think. I hope you'd rather go to a church who believes Old Testament, New Testament, Genesis through Revelation. All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is useful. All scripture has something to teach me. And there will be times that my life and my attitude and my spirit will be confronted with this book. 
and then I have a choice. I can humble myself and repent and align my living and my thinking with this book, or I can just try to just cherry pick the verses that confirm what I already think and justify my own behavior. Here's a great question to ask. Are we in love with God or just his stuff? This is a tough question, but why are you serving God? Why did you come to church today? To get some of God's stuff? You're trying to earn God's favor? You know, if I do this, God will do this. Listen, I'm not trying to discourage you from doing good things. I'm asking us to search our hearts. Are we more like Judas or are we more like Mary? Or maybe like Job, who said, though he slay me, I'm still going to trust him. No matter what happens, God never does another good thing in my life. God never gave me anything from this day forward. I'd still serve him because he's God. He's my savior. I was dead. I was gone. I was lost. Did you know he adopted me into his family? And Jesus didn't have to die, but he chose to get on that cross and suffer so that I could be one of his sons and daughters. So if he doesn't do anything for me from this point, I'm serving Jesus. I'm following him because he's beautiful. And because there's going to be a day when I stand before him and he's going to say, enter into the joy of the Lord forever and ever and ever. That's that's what I want. Would you bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment? Would you do business with God right now? If you're online or in the room, would you just begin to Say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me in this message? Search my heart, oh God. If there's any part of that spirit of Judas in me, self-righteousness, serving you to just get things, angry at you because you didn't answer my prayer, forgive me, God. Purify me, Lord. I'm sorry. Give me a heart like Mary. Even when I don't understand, even when I am disappointed, I'm going to cling to you, Jesus. There's an old song that says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Are you clinging to the cross? Are you embracing the cross of Jesus Christ? Because that is your salvation. Jesus is your salvation. Not doing good things, not trying to earn God's favor or blessing. Everything that God provides, he provides through the cross. If you haven't come to the cross or things aren't right between you and the Lord, your attitude stinks, your pride stinks, your relationships are broken because your heart is not right, I'm challenging you to come to the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I've broken your rules. I've broken your laws. And because of your grace, you've chosen me to be part of your family. And the only thing I'm going to say is thank you, God, 
Thank you, God. And out of gratitude, I'm serving you. I'm following you. I'm doing all the things you want me to do because your way is the way. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. How many would raise a hand and say, Pastor, that's me. Would you remember me in that prayer today? Come on, raise your hand and say, I want to be right with God today. I want my heart to be right with God. Come on, raise them, raise them all over this room. Yes, 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 yes. Keep raising them, keep raising them, keep raising them. God bless you, God bless you. God bless you. Hands are up all over this room. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Online, just go ahead and drop a comment there. I'm giving my heart to Jesus or hit that raised hand button. Put your hands down and pray this prayer. Jesus, I surrender everything. My life is yours. You are beautiful to me. Thank you for the cross, for dying in my place. From this day forward, my life is yours. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you enjoyed today's message, I want to encourage you to like it and share it online. Or jump on the website at graceassembly.org and click the giving link so that we can continue to spread the message of Jesus all around the world. Have a blessed day and we'll see you next week.